public perception of the issue is beginning to change from a little dry to a little interesting, and a good evidence of that you've all got from yesterday morning's New York Times an editorial cartoon about electricity deregulation. Now, you know you've made it big when you're being ridiculed by editorial cartoonists. <laughs> but since we have a C-SPAN audience, I'll read it. It shows two women in the kitchen, one's munching on a slice of toast and saying with great enthusiasm, now that's crisp, reliable, hassle-free toast. And at peak hours with no long waiting periods, say, who's your electricity provider? Uh, we hope that conversations like this will be happening in kitchens around America. Uh, starting very soon. episode of Left Reckoning. My name is David Griscom, and I am joined by my friend and comrade Matt Leck. Hello there, folks. Uh, you're still uh, quiet, Matt. You're still offline. Oh, hello there, David. <laughs> Man, there is just nothing more despicable than that just worthless human being, Ted Cruz. I'm sorry. I love to see somebody body check him. <laughs> I haven't seen the video all the way through as he's walking out. Um, it's been very, uh, I mean, he's really exposed himself for who he is. Obviously, he was a cruel, nasty person before, but he really just is in it for himself. Uh, it's a very, the thick of it. You've seen that British show that um, yeah. uh, I forget Veep was based on, but yeah. it is a classic thick of it style scandal that like <laughs> we thought maybe we weren't going to see in the Trump after Trump, right? Like, mm -hmm. what could, what could, but it's like Trump's out of office. Now we could focus on like the gomers that couldn't just like say, whatever. I don't care. Of course I'm going to Cancun. I'll be back when I'm back, okay? What can I do about it? <laughs> Ted's got like Ted literally has to make up a lie that I just wanted to fly with my family to a place to see My girls were scared. I mean, think about how much of a worm you have to be to throw your family and your children under the bus. Not even just your <laughs> wife. The first report was going to be a political reporter saying like his wife wanted him or something like that. And then the mm -hmm. fi the final lie was I needed to go accompany my kids for some reason to Cancun. <laughs> I, but like, and you know, the he was very cagey about his statement, but ultimately he did shorten his stay from, you know, a longer one to come back immediately after. So I'm glad he's, I'm glad, I'm glad he thought um, that he needed to accompany his family down. One day. But it, it's, Thank it's you. like, it's beyond just Cruz. I mean, like one of the big GOP members, uh, you know, who's fighting against homeless people in the city of Austin uh, also was trying to charter a private jet to Miami. Uh, right when the storms hit, I mean, it is just deep within that party and that group of people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he can't be the only politician that. Um, I mean, maybe the the other Texans that are in the public eye had the had the sense too. But I mean, I bet you there's a lot of politicians that are like, 
do not let it get out that I uh, took this opportunity to get the <laughs> F out of the Midwest during this polar vortex. No, exactly, man. Well, everybody, there's a lot to talk about, as you can already tell. Uh, we have a really great show uh, for everyone tonight. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, in a little bit, we're going to be joined uh, by the gentleman behind the Valley Labor Report, David Story and Jacob Morrison, uh, to talk about the fight for a union at Amazon and also union organizing across Alabama. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And later tonight, uh, we're going to be releasing an in-depth interview that I did earlier this week with Grace Blakely, a Marxist economist, to break down the COVID economy, how social should think about state power, a little bit on GameStop, um, and much more in between. Uh, so welcome, everyone, uh, to, to this show. But we got to get to the task at hand, to this serious disaster. And I hope everybody listening to this is safe and secure. It has been a very difficult week for many of us as we've been looking out for loved ones, family, and our communities. I will say it has been so inspiring to see folks from around the country um, and also you know, in their own communities showing up for people. The fact is that people are alive today because of mutual aid organizations that were performing necessary work, making sure that people were taken care of in Jesus Christ, not just this environmental catastrophe, but this ongoing pandemic. So nothing but love and solidarity to those folks um, and continue to support them, you know, going forward. And can we just, we should spell out exactly what kind of aid is needed. People are uh, like going hungry, severely asking mm -hmm. for food, right? Was that you that told me, was it Christian and Chris that, you know, you go outside and people like literally ask you for food and where you're getting it. Well, it's, it's, it's food. I mean, you have to understand, obviously, for people who are familiar, um, you know, just since we didn't spell it out, you know, we are talking about what's going on in Texas right now. Um, because the electric you know, system failed so many people and because so many more houses, particularly newer houses and cheaper houses are connected, um, you know, use electricity, not just, you know, for power, their lights and things like that, but for heat and for, you know, cooking, you know, their, their ranges are electric. Um, that meant that not only were people facing the cold, but a lot of people were having a difficult time, you know, providing food for themselves. I've heard, you know, stories, you know, from family members about neighbors who had, you know, been surviving on like crackers and cookies because they couldn't cook anything, right? They didn't have the opportunity to do that. Um, so yeah, as Matt pointed out like that, that mutual aid work was critical in providing basic, you know, survival, survival materials to people. And it's something that like, I don't want to take away anything from the mutual aid, uh, you know, groups and the people who were doing that work, but it's something that the state should be doing. It's something that any kind of functional government uh, would be able to provide for people. And the fact is, is that the government failed big time, just as uh, the electrical system failed people across the state. And we'll get into that, you know, um, in a little bit, but, you know, continue, people are going to continue to need help and aid going forward. We're seeing, you know, reports of, you know, empty grocery stores, things like that, right? Lines around the block to be able to get into those places. And then when you get inside, there's very little, um, you know, to purchase, right? So this has been a human crisis, right? A very serious uh, ecological dis- uh, disaster that was only made worse uh, by capitalist failure. And, Let's just start it. Let's just paint the picture, everybody, right? 
Texas right now is in a state of disaster. As this winter storm hit the state, as temperatures plummeted, the electrical system failed. There were blackouts across the state as generators failed. And we'll get into the nonsense around that, before, you know, in a little bit about how, you know, morons like Dan Crenshaw and Abbott and all these people are trying to make it one a war on renewables, but more uh, bluntly a culture war about the way that we produce our energy. Right. But the fact is, is that the systems that produce electricity failed across the state as temperatures plummeted. Meanwhile, uh, the price of natural gas skyrocketed. Um, the storm would be bad enough on its own, right? Just because this is not a state that is prepared to, you know, pave the roads and to provide all those kind of um, services that you typically have to do in a big winter storm like that without the power outages. But, you know, just as we were just outlining because of so many homes um, use electricity for their heating and for their cooking, um, you know, it meant that millions of people had to face the cold with no power and for so many as well, no water or ability to heat food up. I mean, this was a serious crisis, a serious catastrophe. And the sad reality is, is that, you know, people passed away because of this, right? Especially people who had to face these systems, the storm system without access to housing. Again, thank you so much to all of the people who went out there and were doing the basic human thing of looking out for the less fortunate in the situation. But this was a crisis that hit people across the state and it hit the most marginalized communities the worst. Right? Yeah, I mean, any power outage, like you have, like you said, people that are unhoused, but you also have anybody who's on any kind of medical uh, mm -hmm. at home, right, at home care that has to wonder, okay, these are supposed to be rolling blackouts. Do I need to get the F out of here or do I need mm -hmm. to you know, go someplace else, which is a huge issue? Um, I know we're going to talk about ERCOT or maybe we should, actually let's, uh, do you want to move on to that now? Yeah, I, I just, I just want to, and as Matt was saying too, it's like, you know, also people with mobility issues. I mean, mm. those are folks who are going to have, have a really difficult time, uh, you know, in this, in this crisis as well. You know, and, yeah, I mean, the state government response has been extremely disappointing. Um, it left people to have to look out for one another. And again, I'm just so moved by people's ability to do that, but it's something that we should have had, um, you know, a state response to. Right. Um, it's completely unacceptable that the government was so extremely incompetent in this crisis. But here's the thing. This storm was expected to be bad. But just last week, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, said that their system was prepared for the storm. It clearly was not. And I want to debunk one of the dumbest myths um, that has been put forward by, you know, particularly by members of the uh, Republican Party in the past few days, that it's because that, you know, this crisis happened because the state is too reliant on renewables. Um, and I, I know Matt has a bit prepared for this. I just wanted to also note um, that out of the total amount of power that suffered outages, wind only accounted for around 13%, which is a smaller amount by far than what happened, uh, the outages that, um, from coal plants, gas plants, and nuclear plants, right? All of those systems failed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, to go on that, a couple of things need to be said. First about wind, it's true that certain windmills did freeze. The, the uh, note that everyone is making about this is because they weren't 
they were ready for Texas climate. They weren't ready for mm-hmm. a polar vortex that might say be caused by climate change. Um, so they didn't outfit that. And that's another market failure, right? Like, why would mm-hmm. you? Um, particularly if you don't believe in climate change, but if you're even just cutting corners, you're not expecting these these things that are modeled at once every hundred years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, also, um, we'll get to it a little bit more in depth, but this is about, you know, capitalism and um, and and the... And, and fracking, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we talk about, um, uh, like, I mean, fundamentally, this is about the failure of gas infrastructure. Literally, f- liquids freezing in pipes, and those having to all get shut down at the same time. Um, and th- those are both. Um, that's a huge. That's a major issue beyond just the um, the fossil fuel versus um, green energy thing, right? Because that there is problems with demand, right? That you're going to have to get into, but. Um, you look like you want to say something. Oh no, I, re- I was just going to say that. Uh, I mean, it's been a, it's been such a joke to see the you know the freak out about when when as Matt was saying it was the natural gas pipelines that froze over. Well, and, uh, that caused a lot of the crisis. And the the reason why I mean that's preemptive, right? This is a preemptive propaganda campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just like they're stupid and look at these guys. They're they're they know their sides. Like fundamentally. There are people that know that a big like bet has been made or a big like um, uh, a deal has been struck that really serves them. And mm-hmm. I mean, this has happened um, plenty of other times where green energy gets blamed for everything. But this is really uh, market failure. This is deregulation. I'm going to put up this map now. Yeah. Um, this is from and uh, is it Fred Stafford of Jacobin has a piece on this book shorting the grid that I, I mm. pulled this from um, by. Uh, um, Oh, here it is. And I'll, I'll put it up for you to, um, Oh, <laughs> that's fine. I got it. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. So the, hold on, I need to put this down. Um, and oh, oh, here it is. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure everybody sees this, um, on screen. And basically you have different, um, uh, these different, so you have Texas, right? ERCOT, that's the one everyone's paying attention to. And it's like, oh, Texas doing their own thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's a very Texan story, right? But fundamentally, this is, they're not the only uh, group. So what basically happened is in 1999, and, and I'm probably oversimplifying this massively, but from what I've garnered, previously you had utilities that were in charge of keeping the power on. Mm-hmm. Then you have this energy deregulation, which I pulled these clips from, which wanted to open this up to have these sort of pools of transmitters and producers that, and it's it's entirely Reaganomics, right? This is all about instilling competition mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. And so now there's nobody really responsible for making sure your lights stay on. It's like, I mean, these sorts of organizations are a little bit, right? But this is all... The it's it's all uh, uh, abdication of responsibility um, because it's better for profit seeking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like and and that's why like I think it's it's important to hit this point to people that when you see Dan Crenshaw and these morons like Ted Cruz and Abbott and all of the other you know the periphery the folks from Colorado right all these new right wing ghouls who want to tell this story about what happened here was a result of too much reliance on renewable energies you need to be able to say that that's false right. But it's also really important to not fall into the trap that they're laying for folks because they would prefer this to be a kind of, you know, culture war fight, right? Where it's like people who are on the left are, you know, getting really, you know, 
they're focusing so much on the renewable energies um, and, and proving that, oh, actually those didn't create as much of a crisis as you know natural gas and all that kind of stuff and missing the fundamental thing that people like Crenshaw and Abbott and that moron Perry, who is the architect of the system, um, <laughs> they want the conversation that they want to avoid, which is that this was a crisis that was made so much worse because of this fundamental belief in this free market ideology, right? That the markets in themselves are going to create better outcomes for people. And as Matt was pointing out, this is a problem across the country, right? Texas is an extreme example of it, but there has been this deregulation system across the country over the past few decades, which means that these, our infrastructure is extremely at risk everywhere, which is why we're, you have to advocate for a Green New Deal and for a public takeover of these systems. Because if you leave it in the hands of private interests, you expose everybody. Yes. Bec- I, I just want to p- jump in there because what do you always hear when it gets into this? It's like, well, actually, solar is becoming a lot more competitive on the market. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it becomes this like market-based thing. Well, I mean, that this is the world we're living in where uh, guess what else is competitive, which is, is fracked gas, which is also yeah. not good for reliability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and exactly. And like, let's let's start to break down, um, you know, what this is. So it's like, look, you know, there's the culture war thing. And I just like, this is something I, I always want to, you know, point out to people because this is how politics in this country is always mediated. Um, and, you know, I know some people want me to get into some of the nasty comments that we've seen from like blue state liberals. I've just gone to a point with that where we have covered that enough on this show, at least for now, where if you just don't have the humanity to care about people who are suffering, I don't want to be sitting here and having to like advocate for you to see people as human beings, right? To advocate for you to care about other people. If you're that far gone, then at this point, I just don't have the, the, the strength of soul today uh, to tell you why you should care about hungry and cold people, right? Um, but let's talk about you know deregulation and and what that means and why this market ideology exposed all these people to this this tragedy, right? A typical electric system works like this, right? You have your generators and then you have essentially like your power lines, which are regulated either by utilities, um, and then those go to consumers. In a and typically those are like vertically integrated or those things are all sort of being done by, you know, one system. What has happened across the country, um, you know, over the past few decades has been a decoupling of those things, particularly an increase in privately owned electrical, uh, electricity generating assets, and then utilities that manage them, right? And then provide them to consumers. What the system is in Texas, not everywhere, Right, because some places still maintain, um, you know, those kind of older, more traditional systems like Austin, San Marcos, um, right, and San Antonio, is a complete subjugation of that old system to, you know, this deregulated system, which means that there is just constant competition across the board um, and a constant auction system. And what that has really meant, what that means technically for people today is that there is a reliance on what is called just-in-time production. And that was the system that failed epically uh, this week. Just-in-time production means- Including wind, we have to be honest. Like not obviously to this extent that the fossil fuels did, but including wind. No, hundred um, percent. Wind, wind is is a part of that system as well. Basically, private, uh, you know, owned 
organizations, private-owned generators are producing electricity, and then they are trying to sell those to the buyers, right? Who end up being like the utility systems for different areas. Um, and what that means is that it's a constant auction. And to win an auction, you want to be able to be offering the lowest price. And this is where the incentives of this system start to get really weak really quickly, right? So what happens when you're trying to push the lowest possible price for electricity is means that as a owner of those assets, you want to cut costs as much as possible. Well, what is one thing that would increase your costs? Well, that would be weatherizing your wind turbines or pipelines or whatever, um, you know, to prevent against, you know, a, a rare weather event in the state of Texas, Right. And that is something that the market is not going to provide. And let me get this uh, quote real quick here, because I think it actually describes it very uh, well. This was described uh, by the Houston, to the Houston Chronicle by Daniel Cohen, uh, who is an engineering professor at Rice University, uh, who described the Texas system as, as, to me, our system of electricity is like selling lottery tickets. And what he means by that is that typically these organizations are trying to sell, you know, are selling their electricity and trying to undercut everyone else by lowering prices um, and not investing in their infrastructure for these kind of catastrophic events. Um, and then the payoff in these kind of systems, uh, these rare events that you aren't going to invest to prepare for is that in this kind of crisis moment, you are the sole provider. Because what happened across the state of Texas um, as these generators started to fail across the state is that the people who were still able to pr produce electricity and to sell electricity charged astronomical rates for them, right? That's what he means by lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just the people who are, you know, generating the electricity, it's people who are still able to produce, I'm sorry, to provide like natural gas, right? So Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, his company made a bag. They made an incredible amount of money, right? From this system. As people were suffering, they were raking it in, right? The point here is that this was not a system as much, you know, as profitable as it is for people. And it should also be mentioned that, you know, Texas is one of the largest electricity producing states in the country, right? Um, this was not a system that was prepared, uh, you know, to protect its capacity to do so in the future, to protect itself from this kind of event. And what happened in Texas was 100% an example of what happens when you lean into this system as much as possible, frankly. But across the country, we are seeing this failure to invest in this infrastructure, um, betray itself as a massive problem for stability. An example of this would be PG&E in California. Their failure to protect um, and to invest in making sure that their infrastructure was up to date meant that they had pipelines explode, causing massive wildfires and death to people, right? This is something that is we're going to be seeing much more of as we, as you know, our infrastructure which has in this country, which has just completely become subservient uh, to market logic, um, crumbles. Yeah. And the people who are profiting off of the system have very little incentive to prevent, um, you know, to do the kind of necessary social investment uh, to prevent these kind of crises. Yeah, we'll play a little bit more of this 1999 deregulation stuff in the post game, but I wanted to bring up this article from the time period. Um, and it's from the morning call. It's from um, uh, 
April 16th, 1999. And it's interesting to note who who's quoted in the first few paragraphs. Mm. So um, Clinton backs deregulation. Large power providers divided on how to promote nationwide measure. All right. Let me just make it a little bit bigger so I can read it. Um, uh, the, uh, the Clinton administration's plan for opening uh, the $250 billion um, U.S. electricity market uh, to competition got a lukewarm reception from many of the nation's largest power providers. The legislation made public Thursday aims uh, for a January blah, blah, blah. Um, Pennsylvania has already become uh, begun deregulating the state's power markets, which is that's another thing to stress is like I do want to hit the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. but also all the states were moving on this, too. I wonder mm-hmm. I haven't looked at the makeup of the state legislatures, but um, I imagine the plenty of corporate Democrats and uh, yeah, yeah. and Reagan uh, Republicans. Um, but. <laughs> Investor-owned utilities said the nationwide measure would give too much power to the Federal Energy Regula- Regulatory Committee. A rival to the uh, utilities, Energy Selling Enron Corp., said the measure should set a firm mandate uh, for the start of national deregulation. So Enron mm. quoted as the pro-deregulation side of that. Um, I mean, you couldn't have it any better. Um <laughs> In that, and that, and I didn't even look. I didn't search Enron, right? I was search. I'd search Bill Clinton uh, energy deregulation and mm-hmm. uh, and Bill Richardson, who was Epstein really linked, who was uh, Bill Clinton's energy secretary. Um, but yeah, I mean that that when Ted Cruz bashes California for power outages, um, it's the same market failures the- that's causing the stuff in Texas, right? So that's exactly, exactly the way to summarize this: don't get caught in the red state, blue state bullshit. Look, and I mean, like, don't get caught up in it, but understand that, like, Texas is an exceptional example of this because they went further than other places were willing to. But the point that I want people to understand, right, is this was a crisis that is a human-made crisis, right? This is a crisis of ecological devastation, but the failure to be able to provide power to people was a crisis of capitalism, right? And, you know, the particularities of, like, the the Texas example are important to understand, right? The fact that it is cut off from other states. Those are important to understand, but you need, it is equally critical for people to recognize that, Power production and power distribution are critical infrastructure in modern society. We see what the consequences are when those systems fail. And you need to start asking yourself and asking people in your community, asking people in your unions, asking people in your political organizations, if you think that you want these systems to be at the whim of private interests, because when they are at the whim of private interests, Everybody is at risk because they do not have the incentives to make sure that the public good is protected. They have every incentive to find a way to make as much money as possible. And that's why I brought up this quote from this you know, engineering professor earlier, right? Because this is somebody saying like, within the system, it doesn't make sense for these uh, organizations to weatherize their their generators. And what that means is because those people don't want to take the financial hit, they are willing to put everybody at risk, mm-hmm. right? So what is the solution to all of this? I'll tell you one thing. Because everybody is so pissed about what happened, and rightfully so, we are going to see a very funny walk back from the Texas GOP. We are already seeing you know, Abbott and Crenshaw and all these characters act like they weren't a part of this system. What happened here? Oh, it must have been mismanagement. And like, look, ERCOT you know, is not a great organization, and there's been a big push and a focus on the fact that a lot of its board members aren't based in the state of Texas. Frankly, I agree with that you know, on a general point, but they're going to try to do that kind of culture war again um, to avoid the 
the fundamental problem, which is this market ideology. Yes. Right. And we need to like continue hitting that as hard as possible. But the second thing that is going, they're going to start to do is they're going to say, okay, well, we need to do some more preparation for these systems. And what is very likely to happen is they are going to try to put that cost on people, mm. on everyday people, right? Um, we cannot accept that. Wealthy people in this country and in the state of Texas have been making a lot of money over this past year, and they are flush enough to make sure uh, that you know we can tax them and you know upgrade those systems as much as necessary. But we also need to go a step further than that and understand that the responsibility uh, for providing power to us um, and, and the choices involved with that should be democratically controlled. Yeah. We need to put the public back in the idea of public utilities. We need a Green New Deal to address climate change, address, a just transition, unions to help lead that transition, and to provide the work that is necessary of updating our crumbling infrastructure across the country. Um, and we need to be bringing these utilities under public control so that we can make the decisions about what things we want to use to provide power for ourselves and how resilient we want those systems to be. That's the conversation. That's the need. Don't let a bunch of morons distract you from that conversation because they are trying very hard to do that. Well, like Tucker Carlson is, he almost was laughing saying it that like, apparently the Green New Deal came to Texas and put up a whole bunch of windmills. No, it was capitalists that put up the mm-hmm. windmill. And guess what? The capitalists that own the windmills aren't going to be incentivized to uh, weatherize those either just because they're like better versions of capitalists. Exactly. Um, and we have our uh, our buddies David and Jacob from the Valley Labor Report. If we're uh, ready, uh, I think um, we are. Yeah. And uh, just a quick pitch before we do that: uh, Patreon.com/slash/LeftReckoning, folks, um, to uh, support the show, get the uh, post game and uh, anything you want to uh, add to that. Yeah, bit. we get post game theory readings. We're also cooking up a couple of uh, really exciting uh, special bonus interviews for that. We appreciate all of our patrons and the help that they do, uh, making sure that we can provide this show you know, uh, for free for everybody else to this main show. It's really important work. Um, and, and we appreciate all of our patrons. So definitely join us there at patreon.com slash left reckoning. Well, I'm uh, very happy to be joined today, uh, by the gentleman at, uh, at the Valley labor report, David story and Jacob Morrison. How are y'all doing? Good. How are you? Y'all getting all set up. <laughs> there we go. Hey, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no worries. I was watching you on my phone uh, while <laughs> while I was waiting for you to come in, and I was like, oh, okay, I need to stop it. And then when I, I hit the phone, and it fell. So sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no worries at all. I really appreciate I really appreciate y'all taking the time to join us today. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar, they run a really great radio program uh, slash YouTube show um, that you should definitely be checking out that you know covers a lot of the issues that are important to all of us as as leftists, uh, you know, fighting for, you know, fighting for, for labor, organized labor, and also fighting for it within your own communities, which is just something that, you know, is a big part of, of this show and the project that, uh, you know, been trying to build. So we're really thrilled to be joined by y'all today. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Well, you know, I wanted to start, um, you know, if we could talk a little bit with y'all about, you know, the, uh, the union fight in Alabama, that is, you know, drawing so much national attention, uh, which is this fight for union at Amazon. Um, there's been, you know, a pretty decent amount of coverage, but I would be curious to hear y'all's, you know, feeling sort of, uh, you know, how you feel like this campaign is doing and what people are sort of, you know, saying about it. 
around y'all's neck of the woods. Go ahead, yeah. Jacob. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, well, uh, I think that uh, I think that we're really hopeful. Uh, I, I'm sure that y'all saw the Data for Progress poll that mm-hmm. was just released today that showed nationally Amazon employees favor a union by uh, sixty, like sixty nine percent of Amazon employees favor a union. So that made me feel really good. Um, the organizers here are. They've, you know, they've said like we're we we really think we can win, and mm-hmm. uh, and so I think I think that they can win, and and you know one of the stories that really makes me believe that, you know these guys can actually win is the fact that when that you know when they started off uh, uh, they were only going for a fifteen hundred. Um, person bargaining unit and that was mm. just the full-time regular employees and uh they were collecting cards they were collecting authorization cards from employees in the whole plant uh while this was going on but uh they they said uh, you know just to start with we're going to do the 1500 employees amazon floods the unit and says no wall to wall we think this is mm. the appropriate bargaining unit and not thinking that there's no way that these people have more than 3000 cards. There's no way that they have that many cards. And, uh, boom, he, you know, that's what he says. He's a he throw, throws down 3000 hand signed authorization cards in the national labor relations board meeting, and they don't have anything else. Mm. And so the election gets called and, and that's, you know, 3000 cards signed is more than 50% of, uh, of the bargaining unit. There's only 5,800 employees. If the pro act was law, they would already have a union. And that, you know, I think that's important to underscore these, a majority of the workers at this facility have already said, I want a union mm. in writing. And, uh, and, and so now they're going through this long process that allows Amazon to do more union busting and things like that. But a majority of the workers have already said, I want a union. And, uh, and, and so I, I reckon that they're going to be able to win. I, I think they will. And I've, uh, I'm really, really excited for it. I'm, I'm, I mean, like, I'm, I'm hopeful and, and, and very excited, too. And I just I want to underscore to people um, who might not have not been following this story uh, very closely. Just how, I mean, obviously, they're up against this nasty corporation, Amazon. But as you were just mentioning, you know, these tactics that they're using against, uh, you know, the union there are designed by some of the nastiest anti-union law firms in the country. Literally, right? Amazon like brought Pinkertons are involved, right? Weren't the Pinkert? Am I getting that wrong? Weren't, didn't they uh, hire Pinkertons? The Pinkertons were involved in Europe. There, uh, I can't remember the okay. exact Western European country, South Sweden or Scan. It's one mm. of the where they actually had hired the Pinkertons <laughs> to do some yeah. internal investigation on their employees. Yeah, Amazon here. has hired Pinkertons. I, I, I've I've not been made aware of any Pinkertons here in Alabama. But they have, but they have also got the city too to to um, yes l- slow down the red light. Right? Could you explain yes. that to our listeners? Yeah. So and, and and it's actually not the city. Uh, they that's who they assumed controlled the traffic mm-hmm. light. And so when the initial accusation was made, they said, you know, uh, this was the city. The, the organizers and the workers assumed it was the city of Bessemer. City of Bessemer said, no, we didn't change any traffic light without saying that's not our traffic light. And uh, 
it was actually Jefferson County's traffic light and Jefferson County did change the traffic light even after Amazon had said uh, that, no, we didn't request a traffic light change. But what had happened was uh, there's a traffic light coming out of the facility and there on that public property, organizers, uh, Big Mike, a poultry plant worker uh, from up in our area in Decatur has been going down there and handing out cards, talking to workers. And, you know, it was kind of it was a, a normal length light. And so he would have some time. They would ask him some questions. He would answer them. And Amazon didn't like that. And so they actually went to the politicians in charge of that traffic light and said, hey, change this. And they said, yes, sir. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's insane. It's a sign of a company with way too much money and resources to put against anti-labor activity, I think, is another way to characterize it. Um, I wanted to know, I've, you know, there's the famous uh, Robin D.G. Kelly book, Hammer and Ho, about Alabama communists organizing. Um, how much is that historical memory is uh, evident to you guys in this? Um, or I'm just curious, anything related to like the uh, lineage of Alabama organizing? Because I remember hearing it in some interview that it was one of the most organized states, if not the most organized uh, a generation or so ago. Yeah, well, uh, if, yeah, yeah Jacob, David, Jacob's actually read that book. I haven't got around to the book yet. So go ahead, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, well, I uh, and we're actually uh, I've been emailing back and forth with Dr. Kelly today, and we're going to be having him on the show uh, sometime in the next week or two uh, to talk about that, because I think it, it's it's really, really interesting. It, it's uh, for a long time. It's always been one of the most organized states in the South. Um, and I really believe that one of the reasons for that is because of the effective leadership and the effective rank and file organizing that the labor movement in Alabama had in the past <clears throat> with the Communist Party. Uh, I mean, the the CIO back in the middle of the 20th century in Alabama, it was almost completely headed by communist mem- like actual card carrying communists and uh that's pretty crazy and and you know i i i have to believe that some part of that legacy is why uh alabama has stayed more organized than uh, our counterparts anywhere else in the south i mean our our union density rate is still is at this point a little bit lower than the national average but not by much i mean union density on the national level is like 10.8 here it's like 10.6 you know Mm. i mean that's that's like pretty typical where in uh you know north and south carolina it's like two percent mississippi it's like four percent georgia it's like six percent i mean you know alabama is really really um a big outlier. And in another interview, Dr. Kelly actually said that the RWDSU, he believes, is ideologically, tactically, and strategically uh, descendant of the uh, mine mill and smelters union that was a completely uh, run rank and file from the rank and file to the leadership was card carrying communists and the sharecroppers union. He reckons that there's like a really good uh, uh, lineage there. And, and I, and I don't, um, I don't disagree with him, you know, talking to the workers, we've had a good, uh, uh, we've had some good conversations with Amazon workers there. We had a good conversation with big Mike, one of the Mm -hmm. poultry workers there. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think that these, these are folks that that know uh, that know what they're about, that know their history, and and that know what they deserve. And and so you know, I, I and, and something that we've been hearing from all the calls that have been going on is that uh, people are talking to their their families, their brothers, their sisters, their moms and dads, and they're talking to them about how, oh yeah, I've been in a union before, I'm in a union now. You should vote yes. Mm. You know, if and if I could just follow up on that briefly. Uh, kind of to answer your question about the correlation between 
the unionism and the communism that Alabama's seen over the years. Uh, there's still a very strong left movement in Alabama. You know, uh, we're not the only two folks that, uh, that, you know, that kind of skew left and, and the, the, I think the history of Alabama and the anarchy that is, uh, that has a good prevalence, a large prevalence in the state has been co-opted very well by the libertarian uh, mind. I say libertarian party and, and, and to some extent by the, to a large extent by the Republican party. Uh, they try to portray themselves as small government uh, conservatives and and they and, and supporting gun rights and things like this, uh, and so they've brought a lot of what I would consider more anarchist principled people into these parties because the left, what what I would say the left as far as the Democratic Party has strayed so far away from their roots. So mm-hmm. you know, so to answer your question, I believe there's a humongous base of leftists in Alabama. They've just been lied to for all these years. And unfortunately, a lot of them are not as educated and don't follow Fox News and and conservative talk radio is is basically the downfall of what we've seen in Alabama anyways. And I mean, I think it's important to consider that that, you know, Bessemer is a town that is 70 percent black and 80 percent of the workforce at Amazon is black. Uh, You know, I mean, that's uh, I I think that's one reason that we're not seeing, you know, we're not seeing a whole lot uh, from what I'm hearing of like attempts at racial divisions that the divisions that Amazon has been trying to stoke has has been a lot along age lines. Uh, They're trying Mm. to tell the young workers that, oh, because unions bargain for seniority rights, you're not going to be able to Mm. get anything extra for being good at your job, which is not true. A lot of union contracts have performance bonuses and things like that that you can bargain for. Um, And uh, uh, although the two (laughs) the, the two workers that Amazon gave to the media to talk to for an anti-union perspective we're both white and all of the workers that have been in support of the union have been black so you know i mean that's something to consider too (laughs) i I think there's no doubt about the motivations uh there from amazon's perspective and i wanted uh to get to uh what david was mentioning in a second but just um if if y'all could um you know, what is like the status of the unionization project right now uh, for the for the union and like the calendar going forward? Right. Because I know they're, you know, they're in the process. Um, but, you know, what are the next couple of weeks looking like for them? Yeah. So the next couple of weeks is basically a large group of unionists across the United States uh, sitting on phones every day. Jacob and I have been involved. There's uh uh, you know, of course, RWDSU is involved. Uh, I reached out to some of my, one of my sisters in the machinist union last night to see if she could bring in some more people, uh, just for the simple fact that uh, it's almost like if y'all have ever worked on a camp, political camp, you know, a, a large political campaign, it's exactly identical. We're on the phone, we're talking to them, figuring out what they're concerns are if they know how to vote uh you know helping them with anything like that answering questions and uh you know and and some of the ballots are already 
coming in and they'll continue to come in up until next month whenever the NLRB, who is the National Labor Relations Board, says, you know, this is it and they'll start counting the ballots. And but, you know, right now, uh it's it's the work is you you I mean you you're seeing if you follow any of their social media, you're seeing a lot of community organizations begin putting out commercials to help them. We last last week, I think we seen the NFL NFL Players Association uh, making some statements on on a commercial to help them. Uh, I think I seen today that Danny Glover is coming uh, sometime in the near future to talk to them. So you have a lot of uh, a lot of faces, well known faces, that's going to be you know, coming down and supporting them. But the bulk of that work is sitting on a phone all day long with as many workers as we can get to. Yeah, that's the that's the difficult part. Uh, so it's not always particularly glamorous, but it's, you know, critical and important work. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, it, it, it's a bit it's a bit different than a, a political campaign because there are ways that or there are a lot of ways that that they are tried to uh, that that we're we, we try to funnel them into, you know, different directions depending on where they are. Whereas the political campaigns that I've been a part of, there's not a whole lot of it's just kind of like, hey, you know, there's an election. Are you going to vote for this person? Yes or no. And there's not a whole lot of follow up where here, you know, because like this, we're working with RWDSU and we're working with the organization that it's going to be a big part of these workers lives moving forward. And that is going to be them moving forward. You know, there's, there's really a a strong attempt to incorporate into the kind of deep organizing process uh, as many workers as are interested moving forward uh, because, you know, like they're going to be the people that are going to be voting on their contract. Another one of the things that Amazon is is trying to tell people is that, you know, oh, you might get a raise, but who knows, you might lose, you Mm -hmm. might, you might make only $14 an hour, you know, you never know. And it's like, well, they're going to be the people that are negotiating and they're going to have to vote to ratify a contract. And I don't think these folks are stupid enough to vote for a contract where they have less than they started with, you know? And, and so yeah, yeah in really incorporating these people into the union, making sure that they know that they are the union. I, I think that's something mm-hmm. that is a bit different than the political process. And, and as for, to give you a, a specific date, the voting ends on March 29th. Uh, the vote counting will begin on March 30th and last for a few days. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, that's such a funny point, especially if Amazon's making that argument. It's like, well, y'all would be the ones who are, you know, putting the contract forward too, right? Y'all would be negotiating um, in, in that as well. Um, I wanted to, there's two other things I'd really like to get to with y'all. And I, I really hope that y'all come in and uh, join us again sometime uh, soon because um, I, I really value your perspective. But the first thing would be, you know, y'all mentioned it earlier on, but the PRO Act. Uh, you know, could y'all give us a, a quick rundown of what that is and why it's so important to, you know, revitalizing a labor movement in this country? David? Yeah, you probably call us both with our pants down. Uh, I don't have my cheat sheet in front of me, but oh, I can Oh, I'm tell. sorry. That's okay. Oh, it's no. Well, okay. David, you don't know. I can tell him. I okay, there you go. cheat sheet. I, come on, man. You're, I mean, I, there's so much There's so much there, to the PRO Act is what I'm saying. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. You, I mean, it's it's literally – it's very, very comp- comprehensive. But if yeah. you've got it, if you've got it 
rattle it off the top of your head. All young right. Warrior. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, now I will say that there's definitely going to be stuff that I leave off because like David's, I mean, this would be if the pro act passes, which we hope that it will, it will be the most comprehensive rewrite of labor law since Taft Hartley. I mean, mm. it, it's huge in, in half a century. Um, <clears throat> one of the first things that it'll do is it'll uh, take away uh, right to work laws across the country. It'll make right to work laws illegal. And a lot of folks don't know what right to work is. It, and they, they reckon that it means at will employment or they reckon it means that it makes unions illegal. And, and what it does, it, 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 it just says that unions can't bargain for a union security clause which means that they've got a uh, any person who works there has to pay agency fees to the union for the benefits that they receive from having a having union representation you know it's the reason that like you can't opt out of taxes uh in your hometown because mm. you don't like the mayor so you know you ought not be able to opt out of dues because you don't like the union because you're still getting the benefits and if you want to change something about it then like, you know, be a part of that democratic process. Another thing that it does is it increases penalties uh, significantly for union busting. A lot, there's a lot of union busting that is still technically illegal, but that, that it's just the cost of doing business. It's much more, it's much cheaper for uh, companies now to like fire an organizer and then later have to pay them back wages than it is for to, to bring a union in um and so they'll do that and, and knowing that they're breaking the law and uh and and another thing that that makes that really a small penalty is because the back wages that they have to pay is only the difference between what they would have made and what they did make so if they get a different job they only have to pay the difference so and it might mm. not even be any difference if they get a job where they pay more then they don't have to pay them anything and and there's no penalty at all for that and so that uh not increases the penalty to not only back wages but uh there there's significant fines and things like that uh that's added on to it um we did a we did a really long interview with Ryan Kakaris. He's the communications person with uh, the Painters Union. They've been really they've been leading the charge in the labor movement on that. So I'd recommend folks that want to uh, 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 to go really in depth with that uh, to to check out our interview there. Another thing that it does is guarantee a first contract within a year. Um, by law, uh, a lot of a lot of places when they win a union in the workplace, they actually don't get a contract because the employer will stall um, and they won't bargain in good faith. And so it strengthens the requirements to bargain in good faith and it, it strengthens the worker's hand. It eliminates the ability to permanently replace workers. Uh, it is still currently technically illegal to fire a worker if they go on strike, but you can permanently replace them, which mm. is the same as firing. You can say, you know, if they go out on strike and you hire replacements, um, you know, you can just say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have a job anymore. And that's functionally the same as firing. It eliminates that. You can't permanently replace a worker anymore. The second that workers want to come off of a strike, you have to give them their job backs. Uh, so that really increases bargaining leverage there. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think there's a few things, but, but oh, the, and, oh, the secondary things. strikes. Yeah. Talk about that, David. Well, one of the biggest things that that is very uh, key to this union drive is it does away with dual elections. So in other words, like Jacob said earlier, we've got all the authorization cards signed, enough signed to have a union. It's automatic recognition. Mm. Right now, the way it's set up, you have to get the authorization card signed. The company stalls. Luckily, this time they weren't able to stall, but just a couple of months. Normally you'll see stalls for six months. Mm. It gives the company time to hire 
Oh, and it's the same. It is the exact same union busting uh, workbook that every lawyer goes by. Uh, so it completely does away with having to have a secondary election. If mm-hmm. if the workers sign cards, they get a union, and it's as yeah. simple as that. And like Jacob was about to say, the secondary strikes as well. It allows uh, – it really brings the labor movement back to where it started in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in Eugene Debs' time, to where – if say I'm, I say I'm working at X company and Y company says we can't we can't put up with this crap any longer. Mm. They walk out. At, we can we can walk out of our out of our plant as well in solidarity with them and go on strike immediately. So you can actually get to what a lot of these people the last year have been talking about mm. is you know a nationwide strike, a general strike. That makes this possible where it wasn't before. Hmm. Not to say that that's a viable option until you can get the labor movement numbers built up, but it lays the groundwork. Yeah. Biden campaigned and reiterated his support for the PRO Act. Where do you sense snags in getting it passed? Yeah, Manchin, along with numerous others. But it's, it's going to take some serious, serious phone calls on the part of everybody in every state mm. uh, calling their senators the house is is, is an easy win we've you know but the the, the these conservative Democrats uh, you know if they'd like to call ourselves Democrats or Republicans in my eye that's what it's going to take uh, and I you know I've talked to a lot of people that say that it's impossible but I mean there's a lot of things that's been impossible throughout the years. You, you know, you, you, you can't just say, screw up. It, we don't think it can happen, so we're not going to work on it. Mm. Yeah, and we're closer now than, we're, you know, we're closer now to passing it than we've been in a very long time. And, and you know, uh, I mean, I don't know. We may not get another chance to do something like this. And so I think we've got it for a long time anyway. And so I think I think that it's incumbent on, uh, on folks, especially in the labor movement, who have kind of the means to um, the means to lobby through our unions and, and things like that. But but on everybody, because, you know, so many of the stuff that, that we rattled off and I'm sure there's more, uh, you know, that really affects the ability of people to have a union in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, David and I like we've already got unions. We've got union contracts. We've got union benefits. We've got things like that. And so, you know, the PRO Act, like it's, you know, it make my life a little bit better, I guess. But for people that want to uh, have a union like this is really like this is for you. And you need to, you know, you need to hope that this pass and you need to lobby for this to pass, uh, you know, for your own self-interest. Because, I mean, uh, it's like it's for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I really, um, I, you know, <laughs> It's 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 something that's really important to me and, and an important part of like this show, you know, the work that you know we're trying to do here, because um, like you know, I, you know, I, I have roots in Texas and, and in South Carolina, right? And South Carolina is the state when you talk to people about unions, they they treat it almost as like a foreign concept. It's like it's not for us. Um, and I've always come from a place of like I have a real serious hope and belief in people, you know, especially people I grew up around. Um, and, you know, 
that like this actually is much closer to a lot of, uh, you know, almost like the kind of generic working class person in the South's mentality than a lot of people recognize. Um, like one thing I remember, like one of my good friend's father who's a truck driver, you know, sitting around with him drinking and him just going on almost every time he'd have like a couple beers in him, would just go on about, you know, and say, if I stopped driving trucks, the entire country would shut down tomorrow and we could get whatever we want. And I'm just sitting here like, hell yeah, man, that's like, that's strike power. Right. Um, I bring that up to ask y'all, um, you know, when you're talking to people in Alabama and your communities and you're trying to talk to them about why being in a union is so important, why workers' power is so important, you know, how do you frame that to folks? How do you, you know, explain why this is such a critical thing and such a thing that's in their interest? Um, you know, when we are dealing with such, you know, nonsense from the opposite side, they try to convince people that, you know, they're much closer to their bosses than their coworkers, things like that. So, I mean, there, you, it's difficult to talk to people that's never been in a union and explain why this is important because, it, like you said, with your growing up in, in South Carolina especially, it's a foreign concept. But the, one of the things that I constantly bring up that's easy for people to grasp is um, say you go buy a car and, and, and you agree to – Pay ten thousand for the car at at ten uh, percent annual in, uh, mm-hmm. percentage interest, and you don't sign a contract, and you drive the car home, and you've made six payments on it, and all of a sudden the bank says, "You know what? We don't want ten percent any longer. We want fifteen. And if you don't like it, bring your car back." Mm-hmm. And and it's and and you've lost all that. It's the same way. In, in your work environment, if you don't get a contract, they can do anything they want at any time you want. And you have no option other than to like a lot of these right wing reactionaries say, if you don't like it, go find something better. Well, somebody that's worked 10 or 15 years in a company has invested all this time and all this energy and, and truly their labor has built the company to where they are should have a contract where they know what they're, what's guaranteed and what's not. And they, you know, and with the union, it's not a, it's, it's a contract that you get to decide what you want and what you don't. The workers get to determine, I want this, I want this, and I want this, and we're not going to do this. And if you don't like it, stick it up your ass, you know, and that's the most powerful thing that collectively that you can do. And so that's kind of, you know, you, you uh, no, no one, no, business entity in the world deals without contracts except for workers and and we do it on a daily basis and risk our lives with for no for no guarantee Mm -hmm. except for we may let you work tomorrow if you don't smart off to us today no i think i think that's i think that's well put man um 100 unless unless you had anything to to add jacob um I just I want to thank y'all both uh, so much for joining us tonight. I'd hope to be able to do this again sometime. Yeah, promote the show a little bit, guys. Yeah, definitely. People should be checking out the Value Labor Report. And yeah, if y'all like to give everyone a quick pitch as to as to what it is, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, to to wrap up the discussion, I think um, something I, there, there's a lot of people kind of chomping at the bit to support these workers, and and the uh, Southern Worker Assembly has. Um, 
they have put together um, a bunch of solidarity rallies on Saturday all across the country. Mm -hmm. There's now like 40 or 50 events uh, that are already scheduled. And so uh, look up the Southern Worker Assembly, find their Twitter page, uh, find their website and uh, see if there's a rally near you. And if there's not, you know, maybe set one up in front of the Whole Foods or something like that. Uh, uh, and, and if there is one, then, you know, go to it. Uh, I think that would, you know, that would be a way that, that folks, uh, you know, get folks all the time. How can I help? How can I help? That, that would be a way to help uh, if, you know, if they see folks all across the country coming out. Uh, for them it, here in Bessemer, Alabama, I think that would be really inspiring for them. Um, and then the show, uh, you know, David and I are both unionists. I'm a member of AFGE. He is uh, president of the local machinist union. And um, we're, uh, uh, you know, we're on a conservative talk radio station. Uh, they've got some uh, paid programming hours on the weekend. So we got some, pro- uh, some unions, some progressive nonprofits, uh, and a union side law firm in the area uh, to sponsor the show. And so we bought an hour and a half on Saturdays. And so we talk on a conservative talk radio station about, awesome. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. We get some, we get some interesting callers had, had mm-hmm. a, you know, there's, uh, there's this one letter carrier who loves his union, but he likes Trump and, but we've, we've got another one <laughs> thickest Southern drawl that I've ever heard. I was half worried that he was going to berate us when the first time that he called. I'm talking about Joe, David, <laughs> but he's like a 40 year steel worker and he's, he's given us some good stories. Um, and, uh, you know, we're just trying to tell folks about, uh, about the power that they can have through organizing and, and collective action and stuff. Uh, uh, you know, we don't, we talk politics some, but mostly, you know, we talk, uh, we talk to unionists, we talk to rank and file workers about what they've been going through and, and try to keep it at the level of, um, you know, of the workplace, mm-hmm. uh, uh, locally or kind of industrially and like how they, what they can do to Im- improve their lives. And, you know, obviously we'll talk about legislation and stuff sometimes like that. Like we, we just passed uh, the, our version of the COVID liability uh, protections uh, here in Alabama. But this weekend we're talking to Kenzo Shibata from the Chicago teachers union about teachers and reopening. Um, like I said, at some point we're going to be talking to Dr. Kelly um, and so, you know, we have lots of good guests, I think, uh, lots of interesting guests and, uh, you know, just trying to tell people about the power that they can have through organizing and collective action. So if you're on Huntsville or if you're in Huntsville, you know, uh, Saturdays from 930 to 11, we're on 92.5 FM, 770 AM. If you're in Russellville, we're on 100.7 FM on Sundays at 8 AM and, um, and if you're not in any of those areas, then you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, uh, at the Valley Labor Report, or at Labor Reporters on Twitter. If you are in Huntsville, turn the knob as soon as we go off because everything <laughs> else on that station is absolute trash. Do not listen to it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and, and like any good, Jacob said, we don't cover a lot of politics. Like any good leftist, we bash both sides regularly. Uh, yeah. So we, yeah. we do cover <laughs> politics. We just, we don't, we don't pimp or simp for, for any particular side. We generally bash on both sides equally. Yeah. Well, that sounds about right to me. Um, well, David and Jacob, uh, thank y'all so much. Uh, people definitely check out their, their channel. Listen to them on the radio if you can. And uh, I'm really looking forward to being able to do this again sometime soon, y'all. Yep. See you guys. Hey, thanks, y'all. Appreciate it.
Take care. That was, that awesome. was fun. I'm getting excited. I might actually be passing through as I'm, as I'm moving all my stuff uh, down there on, on a Saturday. So maybe we'll be able to listen to it live. That that'd is, be, that'd, that'd be, be awesome. awesome. I mean, I love that idea of buying onto a right wing radio station. <laughs> Actually, I really do so too. We should do a, a in depth things. with them about that process. That'd be a good thing for us to sponsor across the country, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, everybody, uh, we're about to premiere. Uh, this interview I did earlier this week with Grace Blakely. Uh, we talk a bit about the COVID economy, um, a little bit about GameStop, just because it was too funny for us not to, to chat a little bit about. Um, but we spent some good time on, you know, talking about how socials can think about, you know, fighting for folks in the global South, understanding the role of finance um, and how it strangles democracy across the globe. And, um, and also critically thinking about how socialists should think about state power. Cause that's a conversation we've been trying to do on this show. When we're talking about Leo Panich and all these other theorists, we continue to try to expand that, but that's like really starting to become that, that next step level that we need to start preparing ourselves for because God forbid we build the movement and then we don't have the, the strategy and it crumbles. Cause we've seen that happen, unfortunately across the globe um, and across the decades. So coming up in just a second, I guess we have this Grace Blakely. Yep. Do we want to come on uh, after or should we just meet people in the post game? Oh, uh, yeah, we'll meet you in the post game. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break here. And then after like 30 seconds or so, the uh, Blakely interview will re- uh, will start. So uh, see you guys in the post game uh, after that. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Left Reckoning. Um, my name is David Griscom. I'm really happy to be joined here today by Grace Blakely, uh, who's a Marxist economist, staff writer at Tribune Magazine, host of A World to Win podcast, author of The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism, and also the author of this book, uh, which you'll be happy to hear uh, stolen, um, which I've had to buy three times because <laughs> I, <laughs> I keep on misplacing it uh, when I'm reading it on the train or traveling or whatever. But thank you so much for joining us today, Grace. Thanks so much for having me. I hope that an unsuspecting, um, you know, middle of the road politically person picked up those books that you uh, <laughs> left and has had a radical turnaround in their entire view of the world as a result. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping the same thing too. <laughs> um, they were in good location, so hopefully for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that I you know I really want to be covering today, so I think we should jump into it. Um, particularly, you know, we have to talk about this thing, which pretty much every show or article or anything we're dealing with right now has to deal with, which is this coronavirus uh, crisis. Mm. Um, you know, but one striking aspect of the coronavirus, uh, you know, the COVID economy, now that we're, you know, approaching almost a year into the lockdowns, uh, has been just how um, clearly class-based, uh, the effects of it has been, mm. um, you know, apart from the initial shock, you know, things have really stabilized financially for those at the top. In mm. fact, been extremely beneficial for many of, for many of, uh, the, you know, the wealthiest people in the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, not just, you know, when it comes to dealing from the virus, but it's a real effects on the U S economy and the economy for working people. What do you think that this kind of coronavirus shock revealed about the state of the United States and the United Kingdom's economy? And, you know, also, if you want to comment as well on the global economy. Yeah. So, 
a lot. Yeah, of <laughs> um, I'll try and kind of address each of these things in turn. So you picked up on, on one point there, which was that there was already quite um, quite high levels of inequality in both of those societies. It's more extreme in the US, but there is also uh, a lot of inequality in the UK and we'd been underestimating it for quite some time as well. And that comes up in terms of both income inequality and wealth inequality. And those two things um, then feed into other forms of inequality, like intergenerational inequality, regional mm-hmm. inequality, etc., which are uh, obviously big things in both of those economies as well. Now, what the pandemic has done is it really has deepened those divides, um, both between the kind of top 1% and the 99%, but also between the kind of upper middle class, people with some savings, with some assets, and everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I think, something that's, that's really important that we need to wrap our heads around, because what you've seen in both the US and the UK is a huge increase in the savings ratio. So basically the amount of money that households are putting aside into savings. Now, this is obviously because they can't go out and spend their money in the same way as they they could in the past. Um, you know, this is mainly people working from home who are perhaps, you know, furloughed in the UK or, uh, or some sort of similar scheme in the US and they can't go out and spend their money. They're on the same amount of pay um, or, you know, just a little bit less pay, uh, but their expenses mm-hmm. are less. Um, and then that's contrasted with another group of people who are either have lost their jobs and so are unemployed or have seen a big decrease in their earnings um, or have seen a, an increase in their outgoings um, or who've just kind of basically, you know, seen things be, be broadly flat, but who were in a, a, a bad situation before, who were in the red before. Um, and we know that in both the US and the UK, there was this big um, phenomenon of, of household debt, which didn't go away after the financial crisis, which mm-hmm. stuck around. Um, especially since, you know, wages didn't increase very much um, in the period between the last crisis and this one. So you've already got that divide that exists um, and it's being deepened by the kind of very dynamics of, uh, of what's going on with, with work during the pandemic. The other big factor to take into consideration here is this question of wealth. Um, so those uh, better off people are more likely to have um some investments, whether that's through their pensions, whether it's like a, a, a house or a second house or whatever. Um, and those assets have increased in value a lot. I mean, obviously, you know, stock market is very volatile at the moment, but broadly speaking, um, we've seen quite a, a significant amount of asset price inflation, especially in the US. Uh, and that's prim- primarily been driven by central bank policy. So by um, very, very low interest rates and mm-hmm. by these huge, huge asset purchasing programs that are uh, that the Fed and the Bank of England have undertaken. Um, and basically that has meant that, you know, that, that, that gap has become even bigger between those people who have assets and who are seeing capital gains as a result and those people who have no assets and maybe who have large debts, but often who don't actually benefit from lower interest rates because they are seen as a kind of credit risk. So they're actually paying relatively high interest rates as well. Um, and that is going to be a real problem when we come out of the pandemic because, you um, there are going to be a lot of kind of uh, supply chain issues when we come out of the, the pandemic anyway. So it's going to be difficult to kind of get certain source, certain items. It's, there's going to be issues with supply chains and all that sort of stuff, uh, which means there's potentially already some inflationary pressure. But if mm-hmm. you've got this group over here with a lot of money going out and spending loads and loads and loads of money, you know, on all the things that they couldn't buy for the last several years, that potentially creates some inflation, which harms these people who don't have those savings, um, and who spend a, a higher portion of their incomes on just like the things they basically need to survive. So that's one big problem that we're going to be seeing and that was fed into by those issues that, that, um, uh, that, that you know, existed before the pandemic, primarily around inequality. But there are also a whole host of other issues. 
um, to do with the kind of structure of the economy. Um, so, you know, we came into the pandemic, as I said, with high inequality, with what had broadly been a very long term stagnation of wages, relatively high levels of household debt, but also very, very high levels of corporate debt. Uh, and particularly in the US, um, amongst risky firms, basically, there was a big boom in kind of what's called high yield corporate debt. So uh, debt that uh, for, for corporations that are a bit of a, a credit risk, basically. Um, and as you know, we came into the pandemic with that big debt overhang. Obviously, everything ground to a halt. A lot of businesses found that they couldn't pay their debts or they were struggling to pay their debts. A lot went under. Some have had access to state support, which has allowed them to just about tick over. But when that state support is withdrawn, they might go under as well. Um, so we're getting these pressures towards consolidation and, and rising market concentration in a lot of sectors. Um, and that feeds off, again, a longer term trend of the growth of monopoly power in a lot of different sectors um, in the global north. I mean, this is most obvious in the tech sector, but it is equally um, apparent in a lot of other sectors that you maybe don't notice it in because you've got these kind of, uh, you know, you've got lots of different brands, but they're actually all owned by one or, you know, two or three or mm-hmm. four or five big, big companies. So it kind of, you know, um, in uh, pharmaceuticals, in um, food and agriculture and all these different sorts of things, there's quite a lot of consolidation. Um at the level of the global economy, even in those industries. So that's going to be accelerated. Uh, And then, of course, uh, this longer term trend um, that we've seen really since the financial crisis, and this is something that you mentioned earlier, we'll probably talk a bit more about, is of kind of higher levels of government intervention in the economy, Mm -hmm. but that not necessarily being progressive. Um, And we've particularly seen this with, you know, what uh, in the US is, is referred to as kind of corporate welfare, Um, And which, you know, it is a massive, massive phenomenon in the US to a whole host of different industries, just basically the American state kind of skewing cash at various different vested interests. But it's also an issue here. It's become a a much bigger issue, I think, during the pandemic. Um, And yeah, that is something I think the left needs to get its head around because we're still kind of a bit in this place of, oh, we just want the state to spend more Mm -hmm. and do more stuff. We're not really interrogating the nature of the state and the the kind of implications of its its, its behaviour. Yeah, and I, I think especially in the U.S. case, um, when it comes to like Federal Reserve policy, uh, what we've seen, Mark Blythe, I think, you know, used a good analogy. It's like we saw that the pipes only flow one way, and you saw that through a lot of programs, um, you know, when like the Paytech Protection Program, for example, organizations, companies that already had you know deep financial relationships with the banks um, were first in line. And while some of the smaller businesses, you know, people who might you know, be using like a local bank or something like that, had a much harder time getting that, that, that federal program. Um, and, and I think this one thing to know uh, that, you know, people should be paying attention to right now, especially the left and understanding that there is, you know, this looking like a significant shift when it comes to the power of like monopoly capital. I know there is a piece in the Financial Times recently, I can't remember his name, but one of the C-suite members of like Starbucks was basically like humbly bragging about how Starbucks is going to be doing very well uh, in the post-coronavirus economy because he's going to be able to buy up all yeah. of the coffee shops across the country. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'd like to hear you know your thoughts about how um, I, I want to talk you know a bit later about um, the difference between like increased uh, you know government action as as socialism. Um, but I wanted to to ask you right now, um, you know, what do you think this kind of very apparent um, delineation that we've seen with the state? basically picking certain actors and certain players, um, you know, to receive the aid while being completely incapable, especially in the United States case, of providing uh, aid uh, to everyday people. I think there's a, a concept from within 
Marxist kind of political economy that it's really important to understand when we're thinking about this process, which is this idea of centralization. Mm. Uh, and the centralization of capitalism encompasses the kind of growth of monopoly power with the kind of general um, movement towards, I suppose, more concentrated power across the whole economy. So that tends to look like, yes, an increase in, in monopoly power, but alongside that, um, a rising concentration in the finance sector, mm. um, a kind of uh, growth, a relative growth of the power and wealth of some states over others, and imperial power is a very important part of that. And crucially, the links between these different things. So we have monopoly capital in the global north, um, you know, a, a number of very, very big, very, very powerful corporations um, that are basically able to kind of extract value from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And those have very, very close links with financial institutions um, and also with the state. And, you know, obviously the, all these links go each way. So the state is very, very interlinked with finance, obviously, um, you know, without uh, the power of seniorage without all sorts, the sorts of regulations that the state creates to the finance sector, the finance sector wouldn't exist. And that goes both ways because obviously, you know, the finance sector is a really, really big and powerful lobbyer um, and also kind of generates a lot of, con uh, you know, creates the kind of structural conditions in which um, capital accumulation takes place. So it's got a lot of structural power. Um, the links between states and big Big businesses are obviously very, very, you know, deep. Um, and again, you know, big business has this structural power of, of capital flight or strike and uh, overemployment and all these these other sorts of things. Um, and that obviously increases as you get concentration. I mean, mm -hmm. both just for the very obvious reason that there's a smaller number of people that you can get into a room and say, right, you know, this is what we want to do with the economy. Everyone get on board, almost like what happened in the wake of the financial crisis when you literally did have a bunch of very powerful people in a room with discussions over who's going to do what, who's going to get what. So, uh, you know, there's uh, there's a reason for this. It's not a kind of conspiratorial understanding mm, of capitalism okay. where it's controlled by a couple of, you know, big, powerful entities. It's more like, you know, this is a process where we're starting to see a concentration and consolidation of power within the economy. That power is never absolute. So none of these guys are able to completely control what happens in the markets. We still get crises. We still have a level of kind of complexity but their power to be able to influence those events and to be able to benefit from them is growing. And that is kind of what we mean when we talk about the centralization of capitalism. And I think it's really important to understand because, you know, it allows us to see um, capital, so firms and financial institutions alongside the state and crucially empires as well, as all part of this system, as part of this totality. Um, and rather than thinking, you know, business is bad, state good which mm. can often be the kind of default uh, position of a lot of people on the left you can see the ways in which all of these institutions are linked together within this you know system of of, of capital the capitalist world system that um you know exists at the the level of the global economy um so yeah i mean i think that that's important and just you know empirically um we are obviously seeing that process accelerate particularly when it comes to big business and corporations um mm -hmm. the, the financial crisis was actually a period of, of centralization within the finance sector because a lot of banks were under and they were bought by other banks particularly for american banks um that was a, a you know there was a lot of a lot of concentration there um today we're seeing a lot of businesses go under and as you just said you know um marx has this passage that you know capital uh, grows in a few hands where it is lost by many which happens during crises during crises smaller weaker businesses go under and their assets are bought up by bigger ones we're seeing that 
as you say, Starbucks is a good example in the UK, Arcadia, which was a big retail group collapsing mm. and being bought up by another set of firms. We're going to see a lot more activity like that. And I was actually reading today about how um, Chevron and ExxonMobil were in merger talks mm. uh, last year, which would have been mega. You know, it was mm-hmm. like the reunification of Standard Oil, basically. Um, that didn't end up happening, but you can, it's, it's potentially... The gears are turning in that direction. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, this is all kind of explicable within that, that, um, logic of, of centralization. Yeah. And yeah, the centralization for sure. And, and I mean, just take a second, um, you know, imagine when we were back like in March and when this all was first happening, I'll, you know, like, look, I'm a, I'm a socialist and sometimes people misunderstand me when I say this, but I have been in awe at just how bad in particular the American state has been with dealing with this crisis. Like I never expected the Trump administration or let alone the democratic party, you know, to be really standing up for working people and to do a kind of reshuffling. Um, you know, there's all this bold talk, honestly, when COVID first started that there might be this massive, you know, reshuffling of capitalism because people yeah, are going to yeah, become yeah. more reliant on the state. And what we actually saw was just a mass, a mass scale um, abandonment of, of working people. You know, the fact that, I mean, I, like the fact that we're right now have, you know, a Biden administration, which essentially at least has the power through, you know, the Senate and uh, the House to be able to go forward with those $2,000 payments that they promised everybody back in, mm-hmm. in, in January. And they're still, you know, dragging their feet over this. I know this is an impossible question to answer, but I would love your sort of feelings. Like has the, the state um, just, I guess the political class in general, this is, you know, more of a political economy question, I guess, but like, have they just lost the ability um, to be able to do basic kind of stimulus programs for working people? Or do you think like, is it a question of like incapacity on their, on their ability? Or is it a question of like, they actually know that they're benefiting and the system is very much benefiting from the immiseration of of everyday people. Cause I can't figure it out. (laughs) So I think, there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, first, like how we conceptualize the state is important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the the way I like to think about it um, draws a lot on um, Nikos Poudantzas' formulation of state power, which is view the state as the site of class struggle. Mm. Uh, and that struggle that takes place within the state, within various different elements of the state apparatus, is an unequal struggle because it reflects broader um, social relations. So it reflects the balance of power outside of, uh, of the state as well. You know, during the post-war period, you have a corporate state that is interested in basically negotiating between capital and labor to create mm. this kind of social compromise. But it's with the defeat of the organized working class that you begin to see a state that is really heavily reorienting itself towards supporting the interests of capital. And the foundations of that shift electorally come with the construction of this kind of um, mini capitalist class of like you know the middle classes who also come to own assets um, and that ends up being a really important shift in the political economy of the global north it's based on um, a deepening of imperialism at the level of the global economy so I think this is a really important point to get it's not that everyone's becoming middle class it's mm-hmm. that middle class will have become concentrated in parts of the global north and the actual labor of production is is taking place elsewhere but that political bargain was really important really solid Lots of people got access to housing. Lots of people got private pensions. So they thought, you know, our interests broadly aligned with those of other asset owners. Um, And that's uh, what we're seeing today is a continuation of that, because really, you know, all a kind of um, all a a standard capitalist state in the global north needs to do to well, a a political party within the state Mm -hmm. needs to do 
to uh, to kind of consolidate its its position and uh, and retain its legitimacy is to maintain that bargain between the kind of property owning classes and the one percent. Um, the way that it's doing that at the moment is through quantitative easing. So even if there is an insufficient amount of state spending to promote, let's like, say, high productivity or just to you know meet the basic needs of people at the bottom of the income spectrum, it doesn't really matter um, because the, a big chunk of the people who are going to be voting are asset owning mm-hmm. older people who maybe don't even work anyway um, and so are much more reliant upon their assets than they are of the state of the, the whole economy. Another factor in this is that working class voters have just been dropping out of the electorate really ever since the 1990s because the party that was supposed to represent them has you know, reoriented itself towards you know, supporting this, this middle class as well. Um, so there are there is like an obvious explanation for this, which is that the state is not taking into account the interests of working people who don't own capital because it doesn't have to. And because those people don't really have a voice, mm-hmm. like they aren't represented really anymore by the unions, by kind of many other organizations um, that can you know operate on their behalf within the state, whereas capital has a huge amount of, of lobbying power. And actually, you know, the, the property only middle classes as well have like, you know, lobbying um, groups that will kind of go act act on their behalf mm-hmm. in various different um, parts of the state. And obviously, you know, their position and their happiness, uh, their satisfaction with the way things are going is, is like a really big factor in determining the legitimacy of the state. Um, so the big challenge for the left is actually being able to kind of separate out this chunk of, of mm-hmm. asset owning kind of middle earners into those who are, you know, just in like very well-paying professional managerial jobs and who will always align their, you know, align themselves with the the, um, the elite and those who actually, you know, could be convinced that their living standards are declining, their pay is declining. There are all these other crises that are taking place around them. We need a fundamental change and that can only be delivered by the organized power of working people whilst also encouraging those people who've dropped out of the electorate to rejoin it to create this coalition of kind of you know labor against capital which also necessarily has to be broader than just labor it has to encompass all the different forms of social movement organizing that have um, become so much more prominent in recent years so yeah i mean that is i think the question it's like what mm-hmm. is the state of class struggle in society as a whole and how is that being reflected by what's happening within the state yeah and it's 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 really it's it's really difficult and uh, you know uh, ronan burtonshaw uh, at tribune has a line that i quote all the all the time um that he, be he's happy to hear that <laughs> <laughs> i probably quoted too much but uh, um but it's good it's like the job of the left right now is to convince working class people that politics can change their lives right and particularly in the united states and and where i'm from in the south you know growing up as a poor person in the south like they're like there was no hope that being politically engaged was going to benefit your life. If mm. anything, it was defensive, right? Mm. It's like, how can I stop yeah. things from, from getting, uh, getting worse? Uh, which is, you know, <laughs> not something that is really going to have the sustained motivation um, for people to invest the kind of time and activity that they need to do, uh, you know, to, to really challenge the system, especially, you know, as we're outlining the immense power and organization of, of our opponents right now. Mm. Um, so it's certainly, you know, a difficult, uh, a really difficult moment. And, um, you know, we've seen these glimpses and it's, it's sometimes difficult. Uh, and I always remind people, 
who weren't really around before, like the the Bernie movement or uh, you know the the Corbyn movement, also in labor. Just how dark it was to be on the left at those yeah. times, and the fact that we at least have some forms of apparatuses mm. that need to be improved greatly. Um, but we're in a much better position than we were five years ago. But we're nowhere near uh, where we need to be going. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's, it's, yeah, anyways, it's a, it's a very difficult, a difficult task for, for the left. But I think your point about, um, about the state is, is going to be really uh, crucial in that because we have to understand the way that these apparatuses work to immiserate us. And we have to have a stronger understanding of politics than just, oh, the people at the top yeah. are bad, right? Like, yeah. like they are bad, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, if we just like, you know, Change explain to Joe Biden yeah. how difficult <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it is to be a working person in America, we'd be living in socialism, right? Yeah. You need to have, uh, you know, institutions. You could want to change the state and, and mm. even be at the higher levels of power and be unable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unable to address that. Yeah. So let me think. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to hit one more quick thing on the Corona economy before we talk a little bit more about this, uh, you know, the state theory stuff, because I think it's really important. Um, and just, just briefly, because I think it ties in, I really don't want to spend too much time on it because it's been talked about to death, but this most recent GameStop example yeah. is, a, is, a, is a really good um, example of that. Uh, where it's like, look, there were a lot of people who were engaging in, you know, stock market activities, um, you know, who might not be traditional, like well-off people, but they were mm-hmm. also people who could buy, um, you know, you know, buy stocks on, on some level. Um, but still, uh, you know, there are e- even within the people who have the ability to buy assets, um, you know, there is a hierarchy and there basically are the suckers who end up having to hold the bag at the end of the day for, for the people who made an incredible amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely true. Uh, I think, firstly, it is important to remember that anyone who had the capacity to use a stimulus check for investing rather than just making ends meet is not by any means, you know, well off, but like they're better off than a lot of people mm-hmm. who are literally just using those checks to survive. So we're talking about, again, that kind of middle section um, of, of earners and a lot of them as well were kind of younger people as well, um, rather than, you know, the vast mass of working class people in the country. So that's important to bear in mind to beginning that's, to begin with. That's not, like, not to say those people aren't important because obviously mm-hmm. they are. They're a critical part of, of this coalition. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the time there was a, a bit of overstatement of the extent to which this was like, you know, people who had nothing else and were putting everything into the stock market. Actually, there were quite a lot of like well-off people who were doing mm-hmm. this as well. Uh, and, you know, some kind of middle and, and lower. Do you know who Dave Portney is? Um, I don't think so, which no. Is probably a good thing. He uh, he is just like a really great example of this, right? Um, he ha- runs this bro like sports blog in the United States, like super bro um, okay. And he sold his blog for um, evaluation of like $450 million to a big game. Bloody hell. Well, they're going to create like an insane gambling corporation in the United States uh, with the with the media apparatus and the, uh, you know, and the sports betting on top of it. Anyway, the guy made an incredible amount of money. And, the, and he, I think he, he sold the company maybe in January of 2020. So he's been an interesting uh, character to watch because this is somebody who's flush with cash. And yeah. obviously he lost a significant amount of money on the GameStop thing, right? Because he, of course, is the kind oh, of guy yeah. who is, you know, investing um, investing in that way, right? There's a lot of yeah. people who, who got flush with cash and were buying um, and, and really playing uh, the, yeah. you know, this game on large scale. Sorry to interrupt, but... No, that is <laughs> a really good It's example. a great example of like yeah. Yeah, this enthusiasm that we're seeing. Yeah. 
Um, I think, you know, more broadly, um, when I wrote a piece about this, mm. I said that this was the kind of, um, this was the action of a, of a group of people who had been convinced that they had no real power as workers. So the only way that they could exercise what little power they had was as owners, as capitalists, basically. And again, this is this phenomenon of the creation of the mini capitalist person who um, is encouraged to believe that they have power in the system because they have assets um and you know whose interests can therefore be uh you know manipulated very much by uh by the the most powerful people within that hierarchy and you saw this obviously very clearly with the game sort of saga mm-hmm. i mean this is a, a wider trend um if you look at like pension funds for example usually pension funds are the ones on the wrong side of a bet when a bet is made by a mm-hmm. hedge fund or you know um, they're being taken advantage of by high frequency traders or whatever. There are the big, you know, mutual fund guys who just are, are basically, you know, they have to sit on this money and it has to be bigger than when they were given it, but they don't have to make, you know, tons and tons of money over the short term. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually the ones that get screwed over. And yes, those are generally um, funds that uh, are, you know, looking after the, the the savings of, you know, middle to uh, upper middle class people um, who you know have their their pensions invested in these these big funds. So there is a definite hierarchy that absolutely. Mm-hmm. True. I mean, there's a, always hierarchies within capital. This is obviously really important. You know, um, there's even if you look at the way this crisis has played out now, you see all the support that's being, as we've discussed, chucked at big businesses, leaving um, small and medium sized businesses often going under. Um, just because they're on the kind of wrong side of this, um, you know, growing polarization of power within capital, mm. it doesn't mean they're not capitalists. It's just, you know, this is a, this is a symptomatic of a kind of reorganization that's happening within the capitalist class, which is obviously important to understand. Um, and it's important to understand not because we can therefore say, oh, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Like we like small businesses, we don't like mm-hmm. big businesses. Uh, it's important because it's, it, it reflects. Um, a change in the balance of power in society as a whole right um, and it also reflects the kind of material conditions within which we're all living you know the likely future rates of growth productivity innovation investment crises etc uh, so that's why it's important to understand these processes not because we can then say oh the little guys who mm. are you know these plucky young capitalists or investors who are going up against the big old baddies we should be on their side mm. as you know because they're never going to be bigger than a kind of you know like yeah size like that's the thing of the population in the global north we're not, not even talking about the global south yet no of course, yeah and we're definitely going to get there uh yeah. soon because there's some important stuff there like but the point is like they're never going to let you in the club like the, the yeah. all this like all this idea like with robin hood oh we're democratizing finance you know like fundamentally what they were like the re like capitalism is not doing this because it suddenly is like you know started reading like democratic theory and it's like okay we need to let the people and they're like we need to get people who are going to be willing to buy these asset prices these these stocks when they're at their hot, you know, at their height, because we want to offload them on people, right? And that's yeah. why Robinhood was essentially selling information uh, to massive financial organizations to say, like, yeah. okay, this is what the young people are doing. Um, you know, get on the other side of that and make a bag. I think one of the biggest problems here is that people have a very, very poor understanding of the kind of scale of wealth that exists at the very, very top mm-hmm. of society. Um, people don't really know how much a billion is, right? And 
it's like a lot of money it's like a lot more than a million mm-hmm. um and yeah people just don't, people think you know oh all these you know hundreds of thousands or millions of people investing small amounts of money that must add up to something and of course it does add up to something but compared to just staggering amounts of wealth that exist at the very very top of the global economy and remember we're talking about a global market here mm-hmm. it's nothing the amount of money that is invested in you know these massive uh better, like massive funds from all over the world primarily um based off the savings of the very very wealthy is is huge and there are obviously other massive institutional players that get capital from all sorts of different sources you know like from everything from sovereign wealth funds to other companies um and the scale of their power is 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 massive even compared to the combined power of the entire american middle class mm-hmm. Uh, if they were able to coordinate their interests, which they couldn't because uh, for a whole host of different reasons, firstly, they're not a class, uh, really, like, you know, asset mm-hmm. holders, people who have pensions are not a class. Um, they're intersected by a number of different uh, class divides, not to mention all sorts of other divides as well. Uh, but even if they could, you know, that would still be, they would still be up against some pretty, pretty big, powerful uh, institutions that, would probably ultimately end up winning, not just because they had more firepower, but because they had closer links with states, with other financial institutions, with all the other kind of players in this system who basically make the rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have this idea of markets, right, as these kind of natural things that are just exist out there in the world and you enter into them and you intervene in them. But markets are constructed. There are people who are making the rules of the game every day. And Mm -hmm. they are usually in making the rules of the game, talking to the biggest players in the game to decide what rules to set, partly because they don't really understand how the game works, but partly because, you know, there are these uh, mutual interests in in making things work for those at the top. Yeah. And I, and I think that that leads very well into this, this next bit. Um, you know, there's an understanding, and, and I would say it's probably a very American understanding, though I'm sure it also exists in the United Kingdom as well. Um, you know, understanding of socialism, where it's like when the government does more, it's more socialist, and when it does it less, it's <laughs> it's it's more capitalist, right? And like in its extremes, obviously that argument can you know appear you know is is very silly. But I oftentimes see socialists, especially in the United States, you know, probably because they're so used to having to push back against that idea, um, is falsely equivalating um, uh, you know more government activity with socialism. And I want to quote from your book on the Corona crash. Um, where he says, you know, we cannot fall into the trap outlined by Lenin of believing that a quantitative increase in state activity somehow affects a qualitative shift from capitalism to socialism. Instead, we must concern ourselves with how state power is being used and who is wielding it. Yeah. Could you expand I wanted on that to a little bit? Yeah. I was just trying to find oh. that quote from Lenin that I began that at the beginning. Oh, man, I'm sorry um, I didn't have... <laughs> No, it's okay. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's a really good quote, though. Um, maybe, I don't know, I'll find it and put it in the description or something. No, you definitely should. Um, I mean, Len- Len's one, one of those writers who, like, if you ever need to, you know, get a little... Yeah, cheeks. something really spicy. <laughs> yeah. He loved that. Just, you know, peppering his enemies with these amazing quotes. Um, no, I can't find it, but it is a really it is a really good quote. Um, and yeah, I'm basically saying that it's very easy to confuse what effectively states uh, capitalism with socialism. Um, and uh, yeah, this is something that we do all the time, basically, because I mean, it's basically a reflection of the weakness of the power of the left, right? The people who would usually be arguing, oh, we need a bigger, more compassionate, nicer state would be liberals and social democrats. They would be the mm-hmm. ones who would be saying, 
you know, the market needs to be constrained because we have, you know, these ideas about what it means to be kind of ethical socialist, right? So their whole framework isn't really about class struggle. It's about, you know, making capitalism nicer, basically, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, obviously uh, at certain periods in history and in certain places possible because there was an element of that in the kind of Keynesian settlement in the global north. It was obviously relying upon hyper-exploitation in other parts of the world. Uh, you know that was possible it was you know the fact that socialists are now the ones that are saying oh no we all need to rely on the state you know all you have to do is go back to marx who said it was a committee Mm -hmm. for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie Mm -hmm. now it's a bit of an oversimplification because uh you know marxist state theorists have have moved beyond that quite substantially and you know seeing the state as actually an entity that does have some agency and is reflected by all these wider um, struggles that are taking place in society as a whole i've mentioned some already um, so Palancis is, is great mm-hmm. on this. Um, Ralph Miliband is also really good. Gramsci obviously uh, writes quite a bit about the state and that's well worth reading, especially when you're thinking about political strategy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the fact that we've ended up in this position, given the clear lineage of Marxists uh, and socialists being very, very critical of capitalist states, where you know, we basically just think, oh, well, if the state spends more money, then we're all fine. It's very worrying. And it's been particularly, you know, the weaknesses of that approach weren't so obvious when we were, especially in the UK, fighting against things like austerity, right, mm-hmm, which, mm-hmm. you know, was an attempt to, um, it was class war from above, really, it was an attempt to render the conditions of life more unstable for those at the bottom, basically kind of reduce their power relative to capital during a time of weakness for the for the latter. Um, but because we didn't really get that point, we didn't say austerity is about class struggle. We just said oh, austerity is bad because it means less state spending. When the state started to spend more during the pandemic, everyone was like, oh, great. We have socialism now. Boris Johnson's <laughs> become a socialist. Corbyn won the argument. I was like, no, that's not what's happening. The needs of capital have shifted. And mm-hmm. so, you know, people who largely, you know, uh, undertake policy in order to support the interests of capital have shifted what they're doing as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is why it's really important to kind of hit that uh that particular nail at this point um because you know otherwise basically the left ends up looking like a kind of boring paternalistic um like nanny-ish like group of people who are just like you don't know what's best for you so Mm. we're going to get the state to do it for you and it's like actually that's contrary to everything that socialists have been fighting for which is giving power to people Exactly. And <laughs> I mean, I, I love that, that, that last point, especially because, um, you know, I've interviewed some really great like labor organizers in Texas um, who do work with the AFL-CIO um, and, and they were able to fundamentally change the conversation uh, within the union there about things like the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to understand if you're union, doing union work in Texas, that means you're doing union work with people who yeah. directly work or are affected yeah. with, you know, oil and I gas. I saw a really cool video by someone. Yeah, Ryan Pollock. Yeah, yeah, Mike yeah, Siegel, yeah. Mike Siegel in, in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, who unfortunately didn't win. Uh, Pollock did a really great video. Um, and, and anyways, his story is, 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 is a really great lesson, organizing lesson mm-hmm. um, for, for the left. And like, you know, there's some aspects of it that, you know, the, the cultural stuff. So like basically when he put this forward, um, you know, drop all the, the, you know, the talk about AOC or even ended up even dropping the term uh, Green New Deal. And it's like mm-hmm. called federal environmental policy. Right. And you do that because people are functionally like inoculated uh, to hear yeah. that argument. But what really was the, you know, the shift for people is when he said, do you think that these jobs are going to be able to provide for you five years in the future? And people yeah. 
do you think that we need to have a just transition where you are in a leadership role? Not just that we're going to provide yeah. you money, we're going to give you a leadership role. Um, you know, that's the kind of, of shift that, that we uh, really need the, the left to get behind because especially with things like the Green New Deal, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this, because I know that's something that you advocate for a lot. Like there are potentials of like a kind of like right wing neoliberal version yeah. of like, you know, environmental policy, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just put very regressive tax on poor people, yeah. you decimate entire industries, right? So you have to understand that again, uh, just because the state's doing more doesn't make it socialist or pro worker. Yeah. Um, in fact, like we need to be asking the questions, who is it wielding power for and to what ends? Yeah, I think that is a an important point because I often say there's no solution to the climate crisis within capitalism. What I really need to say is there's no solution to the climate crisis within capitalism, parentheses, that doesn't involve basically consigning a large portion of the world's population to dying, which is one way to solve the climate crisis Mm -hmm. is to say, we're going to leave all the regions of the world that will be affected by rising sea levels, desertification, extreme weather events, basically to suffer their own fate put up really strong and well-fortified borders and protect the centres of capital accumulation in the global north and basically save our future global south and indeed to poorer people in the global south as well who will be affected by, you know, whether it's in California, wildfires or um, air pollution or, um, you know, all the other extreme weather events Mm -hmm. that will end up hitting um, various parts of the global north. So there is a kind of a bunker mentality way of dealing with climate breakdown, which I'm sure many sections of the global elite are planning for, really, already. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there there is a solution to climate breakdown within capitalism, but it just involves basically mass social murder. Um, the only real way to, uh, to, I suppose, mitigate the climate breakdown that's already with us, because in many ways we're beyond the point of, of prevention for many parts of the world now, um, as you say, to create a just transition and, and do this in a fair way, as well as obviously, you know, reducing our emissions to try and make the problem less bad, mm-hmm. uh, is through some sort of Green New Deal that involves, um, you know, that is about really, the, the centre of, I think, the Green New Deal should really about be about, um, uh, I suppose, deepening class struggle rather than attempting to ameliorate, ameliorate it by placing the interests and voices of working people, the ones who are most likely to be affected by this thing, at the forefront of the demands that are being made. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, those demands might be being made of the state, but the crucial thing to think about is, is how those demands are being articulated and what is the process by which we think we're going to win these things. Do we just think we'll elect good politicians and they'll do it for us, or do we think we need to organise? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the critical thing. Um, you know, when we think about how we articulate this thing, it's not just like a, something that those guys can do on our behalf, which is where I think comparisons with the New Deal, although obviously the New Deal was like the foundations of that was, mm-hmm. you know, a much more powerful labor movement. Mm-hmm. So there is that. The other thing, of course, is that this is only going to work if it happens at the level of the global economy. Uh, and that's in many ways a pipe dream, but there are a lot of things that um, rich countries could do to support efforts at climate mitigation and um, a decarbonization in the global south. And that stems everything from kind of technology transfers, which is really, really, really important. Yes. Uh, which obviously kind of intellectual property law gets massively in the way of to just, you know, um, resource transfers to uh, thinking about kind of new financing mechanisms for, for climate mitigation. So like a new kind of global climate bank that was able to lend to the global south would be a, a really big thing. A debt write-off for the global south is going to be very, very important because we've seen the biggest capital outflow from 
the poor countries on this planet um, ever during the COVID crisis. Um, so, you know, lots of those countries basically struggling to both provide for their citizens and repay their creditors. So, yeah, this kind of has to be conceptualised in a much bigger way that is looking at the capitalist world system mm-hmm. and is looking at the positions of different classes and different groups within that rather than just saying, oh, well, the American state is the world's foremost imperial power, so we can create as much money as we want and use it to do whatever we want. And we'll do the Green New Deal by making the military bigger so we can keep out all the migrants that are going to be pushed out mm-hmm. of like desertified regions, which is something that they're thinking about already. So yeah, I mean, this is the Green New Deal is a very broad and big yeah. moniker and that's partly what makes it so powerful, but it's also obviously a big part of, uh, of, of the problem. Well, again, you know, it can be a huge opportunity and also, you know, can go horribly wrong, like anything yeah. in politics. <laughs> um, I wanted to 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 talk about this because you were you were just mentioning about what's been happening in the global south because I know this is something that uh, you know you're passionate about something that I've been very passionate about as well which has been this outflow of of capital from from that part of the world and I want to bring up a specific example that I've been talking about since the beginning of this COVID crisis which was what was happening in Argentina uh, where at the beginning of the the crisis uh, you know you're having the the um, minister of economy spending his time not trying to deal with and help out the people of the country, but literally negotiating uh, with primarily American and European yeah. bondholders, primarily represented by Black uh, BlackRock, yeah. uh, who wanted one, money, and two, a say in the way that a country uh, was you know, was managed. And, you know, there's the, the whole, uh, you know, story about how those negotiations went and all that, which I think we can just put to the side for now, because the fundamental point that I've always tried to make to, you know, my audience was that you need to understand this as a struggle for democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Where a government wins an election yeah. and they face a challenge, which is, you know, how do we make sure that people don't die from this horrible virus? Um, and instead of being able to deal with that, they have a bunch of people who aren't citizens of their country demanding that they take certain economic policy. Um, um, you know, which is, again, is a great example of how capital very much is incompatible with, you know, the concept of, of democracy. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts, you know, on that analysis. And then also um, one thing that I know, you know, you outlined very well, and it's just an interesting development that we've seen within capitalism is, you know, the term like capital controls, right? And how that is just mm-hmm. such a something that we can't touch. It's very, you know, it, you know, especially in like a lot of like mainstream economists, it's like that's the worst policy that you could ever do. Um, and what we're seeing again in Argentina is they implemented a solidarity tax on millionaires. And what we've seen in response has been capital flight to the United States and Uruguay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I think I'll start on the last point about capital mm-hmm. controls. Um, this is an interesting subject at the moment because there is a kind of growing consensus at the level of the global economy that capital controls can sometimes be useful. And this Mm -hmm. has become particularly obvious in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, And a a big part of it comes down to really the way that you need to understand what's going on when um, central banks in the global north buy lots of assets uh, and have interest rates really low. Because what they're really doing is, is kind of squeezing returns, encouraging investors to go and seek out high yield, therefore risky investments. And in doing so, they squeeze capital out of the global north and into the global south. You get big capital inflows into the global south. A lot of that goes into government debt. And investors, when they're doing this, they know that they're taking a risk, Mm -hmm. but they also know that they'll probably be bailed out because their government will put pressure on the companies, the the countries that they're lending to, to repay them back no matter what. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, that is a whole other thing there. You've got actual moral hazard from 
the creditors themselves. They're the ones that are taking the risk in lending to these com- mm-hmm. countries. And yet every time something goes wrong, they expect to be bailed out. You see this kind of, you know, the 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 deepest example of this with these um, these entities called vulture funds, which basically buy up the debt of countries who look like they're about to default so they can take them to court, sue them and get tons of money. This happened with Zambia after the financial crisis and a, a bunch of other countries as well. Um, and it really is, you know, an abhorrent, obviously abhorrent side of capitalism, but it, it reflects those kind of deeper structural um, structural issues. The issue with that, I think the reason that there's been a bit of a softening on capital controls is because they're becoming much easier to evade. Mm. Why? Partly because of things like Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're in kind of uh, Venezuela, Venezuela or that parts um, of, uh, of the world which um, do have restrictions, including Argentina, on um, your capacity to move currency, you can do it through bitcoin you can buy drugs through bitcoin you can mm. move money through bitcoin so and obviously all you know those other um uh currencies based on distributed leisure technologies um and you know various other technologies that are also making this easier i mean like financial secrecy for example is another um another factor that makes it a lot easier to move money around the world so it's kind of like yes it's been a softening but actually it's become much easier to mm. evade um for the rich anyway, mm-hmm. for, um, for kind of ordinary people, it's, it's slightly more, more difficult. So yeah, that's a kind of inevitability that emerges from the growth of the, uh, the, the world market that inevitably takes place under, under capitalism. But it is very important to remember that, especially when we're thinking about these things like lending, um, this is not inevitable. It is driven by a legal and regulatory architecture mm-hmm. that is constructed by states and predominantly by the most powerful states. Um, so, you know, it's not just um, that there are, I mean, firstly, there's very little um, actual, uh, you know, regulation that's been agreed by all all kinds of states, debtors and creditors at the level of the global economy as to what happens when a country defaults. That's a problem because it means that the most powerful countries are basically able to kind of exercise their will quite freely. Um, but on a whole number of other issues, there is kind of international law on what governments can and can't do mm-hmm. uh, things like for example um investor state dispute settlements that are um that uh basically are um prevent governments from implementing certain policies that harm the interests of investors investors are able to take states to court in international arbitration courts um and uh yeah, often that means um, governments paying huge fines to tobacco companies, oil companies, whatever, when they've tried to regulate them properly. Mm-hmm. So there is a big architecture that exists at the level of the global economy, um, which uh, extends beyond capital controls and, and really kind of um, deepens the power of, mm-hmm. of capital in the global north mm-hmm. over states and workers and actually capital in the global south. Um so it's that entire architecture mm-hmm. that is really what is constraining democracy. Capital flight has always been like a, a centered in that analysis mm-hmm. um, because it was actually something that people thought they could control. There was capital flight and capital strike. You undermine the threat of capital strike by boosting public investment, which is actually interestingly how an analysis of the, the kind of relative strength of the state can come into this, this Marxist analysis. You know, if you are actually undermining the power of capital to and say capital strike, then that is something that is reflecting the uh, effect of the balance of class power. Capital strike, again, you know, we'll just leave if you don't do X or Y and Z. Um, and uh, increasingly, actually, 
they don't even have to threaten that because there are there is this system of rules and regulation that exists within international institutions and uh, in kind of bilateral treaties between states that actually just prevents governments from doing certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a real challenge primarily to states in the global south because the um, the the punishment, I suppose, for breaking these things is something that can be dished out, obviously, most effectively by wealthier states mm. and uh, wealthier kind of groups of states. Um, and the impact of that is going to be bigger on a smaller and poorer country. So places like, for example, Ecuador, right, which which has tried to kind of push back against this quite a lot with previous governments and ended up being um, kind of punished as a, as a result. You see this quite frequently. Um, so, yeah, I think there's like, I, I, I've explained the problem very, very well in terms mm-hmm. of actually, you know, thinking about how we deal with this stuff. I mean, in many ways, the whole debate about Brexit was was linked mm. to this stuff. It was like, OK, right. So we're freeing ourselves from a lot of these EU laws and regulations that, you know, systematically promote the interests of capital over labour. But we are not ending up with a progressive alternative. Instead, we're ending up with a conservative government that wants to slash workers' rights, remove environmental regulation, mm-hmm. make a trade deal with America that's going to include things like investor state dispute settlements, along with a whole other set of things that, um, you know, like privatization of the NHS, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's not clear in this particular historical juncture how we would rebuild the international system. Mm-hmm. But that's in many ways a secondary question, which comes after how do we deal with the state and particularly Mm -hmm. imperial states like the u.s which have the power to actually shape these rules much more profoundly than many others yeah and it's it's something that you know i obviously don't have any answers to and i think a lot of us are trying to work through them but it's important for leftists especially people who are living in the u.s and the uk to understand uh, those dynamics when you know you're talking um, about countries like Ecuador and and Argentina, you know, as they try to build you know some kind of alternative uh, to understand that the United States and the UK, I mean, UK and Venezuela right yeah. now, you know, they yeah. play a massive role in preventing yeah. those countries from being able to implement even what they want to, and just understanding that we're very much all connected. It's a it's a global working class uh, struggle. Um, Grace. Really, thank you so much uh, for for joining me today. Uh, please, everybody, check out her writing in Tribune Magazine. Um, really, her podcast, uh, A World to Win, is phenomenal. Also, check that out, too. And buy, uh, you know, Corona Crash and, and Stolen. They're both phenomenal books and have taught me a lot. Thanks again, Grace. Thanks so much, David. It's been great to come on the show. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.